Thank you, Tamara. Thank you, priest team. Well, today's passage, I have to say, is one of the most debated passages in the New Testament among commentators and pastors and theologians over the centuries. And so we really have our work cut out for us this morning and next week as we walk through this part of Hebrews together. Uh, I really dug in early as I approached Hebrews chapter 6, and I have to tell you, it has just been glorious to discover God's Word However, before as much, as much ground as we have to cover, there's something important that I need to do first. And that's I need, I need to ask for your forgiveness and make a matter right before we begin today. A couple times over this last month, we talked about the hypostatic union. The, the doctrine of the two natures of Jesus coming together in one. And I told the story about my wife and how she said that the hypostatic union sounds like the fabric sheet that gets stuck to your pant leg after pulling it out of the laundry. However, um, as I told that story, I I didn't represent it very well. In fact, last week, last Sunday, I just briefly alluded to that story, thinking in my mind how much I love this story about my wife and and that she just even came up with this great word picture. But the way I I presented it, it it really sounded like I was trash-talking my wife and uh, anyone that would say such a thing. And a member of our congregation mentioned it to me after last week's service, and it made me aware that of just how that came across, that it really sounded like I was correcting Angie in front of all of you and making fun of her. And uh, the bigger picture is that when I was studying for my ordination, and I was trying to just even articulate these concepts of the hypostatic union, what that even is, in my own mind, I asked Angie about this, this doctrine. I just mentioned hypostatic union and asked if she was familiar with the phrase, and, and she hadn't been. Um, and uh, so she really had nothing to work with in, in the conversation other than, okay, what is this thing? And so, um, so it was just really out of the blue, and then as a joke, she came up with this fabric sheet idea. And, and for the last 20 years, uh, I have loved that memory of my wife. Um, not that she's gone. She's right here in front of me. So, <laughs> Got to be careful. Hit on. I'm going to be apologizing again. I, I love that memory that we share. And uh, for me, it, it highlights what a quick wit she has and how she can put things into words that sometimes are just too amazing for me and surpasses my ability to do so. Uh, so I've, I've enjoyed telling that story over the last 20 years from time to time and, and with you a couple times this last month. Because it's one of my favorite stories about her, and I, and I love that she gave that to me. But when I told the story recently, that endearment is not what came across to some of you, and I think probably to my wife. And instead, it made Angie look like the punchline of the joke rather than the one that created the punchline. And so it, it grieves me that I, I would paint her in any negative light, um, this woman that I love. And so I've already asked her for forgiveness, and we've made that right between us. But I, but I want to come to you and ask for your forgiveness as well for two reasons. Uh, number one, as your pastor, I, I realize that I, I set an example to you. And that um, and my desire is to set a pattern for you regarding the way that, that husbands should love and honor and cherish these women that God has gifted into our lives. Uh, and that needs to be lived out in front of you, even in these small things like the way I present my wife uh, in sermon illustrations. I, I do or some coffee or ice cream, by the way. 
Um, so I, I'm sorry for, for that. But, but also, number two, our marriages. Our marriages, all of us, are a, a portrait of the incredible picture of the relationship between Jesus Christ and His bride, the church. Anytime I show disrespect to Angie, it, it mars that picture. And, and so I'm sorry for that. And I'd like to thank you in advance for just the, your gracious patience with me that you have always shown and that I know you will most likely show in this case, even when I sometimes stumble through words and how I express things. So um, I'm sorry for that and, and thank you. And uh, I love you all very much. And with that, let's go to this passage and let's pray together. Father, we, we'd come before you this morning recognizing... Um, how fallible we are in sometimes our words, in our thoughts, and our deeds. Not only do we sin, but we make mistakes. Uh, we are limited in what we can understand. And so, Father, we pray for your wisdom as we approach a passage that godly Christians that love your word have disagreed about for the last 2,000 years. We recognize this is probably one of the most challenging passages of the New Testament. And so we pray for your wisdom as we approach this text. We pray that you would give us humility, that none of us would be filled with pride thinking we've got all the answers. But at the same time, I pray that you'd help us to handle your word responsibly, that we would divide accurately the word of truth, and that we would live these things out in our lives as a result of encountering your grace here in this passage, your rebukes here in this passage, your warnings here in this passage, your comfort and exhortations. I pray that we would be challenged personally that we would be challenged as a church, and that it wouldn't just be something that we engage our minds in and our intellect, but that our hearts would be softened to Your Word and that You would transform us by the power of Your grace and the filling of Your Spirit. Please use this passage, our discussion of it, and the dialogue that we have with one another throughout this week and in our own minds as we study it ourselves. I pray that You would glorify Your Son, Jesus Christ in the midst of this. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Well, as I stated, Hebrews chapter 5 and 6 is one of the most challenging passages in the New Testament. I even heard somebody this morning say, this is the most challenging passage in all of the New Testament. And Christians have approached this text in a variety of, of different ways. We'll look at some of those next week in particular. But sometimes... Uh, Christians have forced their theological viewpoint into the passage, whether it's right or wrong, and tried to make the text agree with what they think the text is saying. And so sometimes we take our theology, whether it's right or incorrect, and we kind of force it on the passage. Uh, sometimes we make a mess of the very words themselves ra rather than just letting God speak. And part of the problem as we come to this passage, and as we, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, part of the problem is that we come to this passage. And we bring quite a few presuppositions to the text, as we often do, rather than letting the text tell the story and change the way that we think. And so my goal here is to try to walk through this text with us this week and, and next week. And, and really, I, my hope is that we would do a Bible study together, that, that you would engage in some of these issues, that you would look at it for yourself, that you wouldn't just take my word for any of this, but that you would go to the text yourself. Study it. Look at it. Say, are these things so? Do I agree with Pastor Jeff? Do I disagree with Pastor Jeff? And that's okay. And uh, boy, I tell you, some of the, the names I've been reading this week, the men I, I look up to and, and admire and look forward to meeting them in heaven, and 
um, boy, they disagree about this passage. And, um, and I think they've made some mistakes and they've made some really good points. Uh, so my challenge for you is that you too would engage in the study of God's Word. Um, my goal is to walk us through that text and, and hopefully we can better understand what the original writer under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was intending for his original audience to understand as, as they heard these things. So here's a framework for what we're going to cover today and, and next Sunday, and maybe a little bit of a framework for your personal study as you also engage with Hebrews. This passage has, has three movements that we're going to look at. Three different sections that we're going to take part in. The first part is chapter 5, verses 11 where we left off last week, up to chapter 6, verse 3. It's a unit that goes together, and it contains a rebuke for the Hebrew believers because they were not pressing on to maturity. But closely connected to that is the second movement, which happens in chapter 6, verses 4-8. through It contains a warning for these Christians. And these four verses... Five verses, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay, eight, five verses. These five verses are where he, we're going to spend the bulk of our time today and, and next week, um, or at least setting a foundation for understanding those verses. And then we're going to look at uh, some Old Testament background as we consider those five verses behind the warning. Next week, we're going to consider a few of the major interpretations and you know, how has Spurgeon dealt with this, how did John MacArthur deal with it, you know, different views that people have come to this text and, and how they've explained it. And I think that might help us understand better what some of our options are. And then we're going to move forward, like I said, with humility, knowing that, that every single one of us are fallible, that we make mistakes that, uh, in our own interpretations. Uh, and we want to recognize that some, some of us some of our understanding of this passage, we might have a hole in how we're understanding it that, that others might see more clearly than we do, but those holes in our understanding might be there. And so we want to approach this with humility. And I'll share with you the view that, that I believe best explains what the author of Hebrews was trying to say to his original audience and that applies to us today. But then the third movement is in chapter 6, verses 9-12. through 12. And it contains an exhortation and some words of, of comfort. It's kind of like that parent that says to his child, hey, come on, get things together. And the child starts crying, breaks down, repents, and then, and then the dad gets down on his knees and says, hey man, I love you. And this is why we, we went through this. And this is why, why I rebuked you. And so it, it, the Hebrews does the same thing. He, he's pretty hard on the Hebrews, but afterwards he's going to come back and he's going to bring some comfort to them and say, hey, here's what our goal is. Here's where we're going as, as we walk with Jesus Christ. And so there's this word of comfort for the Hebrew Christians in those last few verses. And then finally, we're going to try to pull all this together so that we can apply this passage to our own Christian walk today. So that's the journey that I hope that we can try to, try to go on this next couple weeks. Let's start with the context of where we're at in Hebrews. And let's look at the last four verses of chapter 5 because those four verses and the first three verses of chapter 6 are directly tied to the warning that we're going to find throughout chapter 6. When we, when we pushed pause last Sunday, the author of Hebrews had, had started into a new discussion about Jesus as our high priest. In our prayer meeting today, uh, I was just briefly talking about our passage, and, and Todd said, Melchizedek, we're going to talk about Melchizedek, right? And I said, no. That's where he left off last week, but the author of Hebrews, he stops and he says, okay, why, I want to talk to you about this, and Todd wants me to talk about this. But you're not ready for this, he tells the Hebrew believers. And quite honestly, some of you aren't ready for this. And he says, we can't talk about Melchizedek yet. 
And so he pauses that discussion almost as soon as he started it. And for a whole chapter, think of this whole chapter as a big parenthesis. And so this discussion of Melchizedek and the high priest of Jesus, this is the main course of Hebrews. He's in the middle of Hebrews, and everything that has led up to this point is an appetizer in the salad course. This is the steak that he expects us to sink our teeth into. But in verse 10, he's introduced us to this idea that Jesus has been designated by God as a high priest in the or- after the order of Melchizedek. And with that, he hits the brakes. And the author of Hebrews recognizes that the Hebrews, their, his audience, was not ready for this discussion because they had started to become lazy. And so, think of today's passage as one big parenthesis right in the middle of the book where he started the conversation but then says, okay, we've got to deal with something else before we move on. And he goes, to, he goes down a rabbit trail in order to confront the lack of spiritual maturity that these Christians were exhibiting in this Hebrew church. And he'll come back to Melchizedek, but not until chapter 7. So we've got a couple weeks before we're going to get there. But first, a few of us need to wake up and start paying closer attention. Look at the rebuke in chapter 5, verse verse 11 and forward. He says, about this, we have much to say. And, And it's hard to explain. He's talking about Melchizedek. Since you have become dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again of the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now, it's a pretty straightforward passage, isn't it? Now, there are times where God speaks of the milk of His Word in a good context. We, we need that. We need to review those basic principles of our theology, those basic understandings of, of our doctrine and, and what we believe. That uh, Milk is a good thing. But if that's all you're living on, it's not a good thing. And so he's recognizing that the Hebrew believers, they're not growing. They've come to this halt in their Christian walk. And so he rebukes them. He basically states that he wants to discuss this, that Jesus as the high priest with them. And he has some hard things that are tough to understand. How many of you got a really good grasp on Melchizedek? Some of you are a little familiar with it. Some of you have been a little lazy and you need to listen to what he's saying here because some of us aren't ready for that. And he's saying, hey, let's wake up here and pay attention because this is important stuff, but you're not ready. And so that rebuke is as much for us as it is for these Hebrew believers. And he says to this church, you've become dull of of hearing. And the word that he uses here, it it means to be sluggish. It, it It was often used of soldiers. How would you feel about your soldiers going into battle? And, and rather than showing discipline and, and readiness for battle, they all walk out on the field, their hands in their pockets, and they're sluggish. That's, that's the picture here. Or it's a picture of an athlete who is, um, who is untrained. Right before he goes out on the field, he, he sits and he has a nice ribeye and some mashed potatoes, and he comes out going, oh, he's sluggish. He's lazy. He's unprepared. It's the athlete who's out of shape. And God says to this church, you're you're lazy. You aren't ready for more challenging concepts because you're still back in first grade learning the ABCs. That's the word He uses there when He says the elementary principles. 
These are the ABCs of Christianity. And so in verse 12, when he says that they need someone to teach them the basic principles, these are the ABCs of Christianity. One plus one is two. And then he uses the illustration of milk and meat. He says, you're not ready to chew on the steak I have ready for you because you're still calling out for your mommy and you're looking for milk. There's a time and a place in the Christian life to be like a nursing baby. And we should all delight in those basic principles of our Christian faith. But, but there comes a point in your walk with Christ where you need to be weaned and start eating some solid food. And friends, some of us here today are new Christians. You're, you're new in the faith. You're just discovering all of this and, and, and you're starting to cut your teeth. And, and you're a baby Christian and, and it's a wonderful time in your Christian walk. And I want to challenge you and encourage you. Enjoy that time and, and discover these truths about what God says to you and what God has done for you. And delight in those things. Delight in them. Enjoy that time and, and delight in the things that you're learning. But some of us, some of you have been followers of Jesus now for many years. And you should be teaching others. You, should be, you shouldn't still be just learning your ABCs and reviewing those ABCs. Some of you have matured to a certain point in your walk and, and you've decided, you know what? I, I, I grew a lot for 10 years. I memorized a lot of Bible verses. I really got into some Bible studies. Some people taught me some great principles. I learned some good theology. And I feel really confident about where I'm at, and I think that can get me by for the next 20 years. And we've become lazy in our spiritual maturity. And there are some who say, I, I really don't feel like pressing on any further. I'm just going to survive off of these first few years of my Christianity and everything that I've learned. And rather than challenging myself more and, and, and learning everything that I can to know about God, in my relationship with Jesus Christ, rather than this hot pursuit of a relationship with Jesus Christ, I'm just going to coast to the finish line for however long I'm here. And I would imagine that just like the church of Hebrews, a lot of us are in a lot of those same categories. Some new believers that are just starting to grow. Some believers that are maturing and you're doing well and you're continuing to grow. And several of us that are somewhere in between where we're just hoping that we've got enough to get us through to the end, but we're done working. And I want you to listen to what he's saying here. Because this rebuke was for this Hebrew church, but every single one of us needs to evaluate our own heart. I, as your pastor, need to evaluate my own heart. I'll be honest with you, I've been doing some serious soul searching. I started a couple theology books this week because I went, yeah, I need, to, I need to freshen up on this one. I need to, to look at these things. And I need to seriously search my own soul and go, am I being spiritually lazy like he's rebuking them of doing? How do we press on? The Christian life, my friends, it's not about coasting through. It's, the Christian life involves an ever-growing, hot pursuit of knowing Jesus Christ and making Him known. He continues this rebuke in verses 1 through 3. He says, Therefore, okay, what's therefore mean? He says, Result of everything you've just, we just talked about. You know, ouch, right? Are anybody feeling it like they probably did? Therefore, as a result of this rebuke here, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. He's not, he's not saying forget 
the grace of God and forget all the things. He's not saying abandon those things. He's just saying it's time, it's time to grow up. It's time to, to move into second and third, fourth grade, do some calculus rather than your two plus two is four. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Again, he's not telling us that those doctrines are not important and not worthy of your time and devotion and meditation, but, but he's teaching about repentance and, and faith, about Old Testament cleansings and the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, about resurrection and eternal judgment. This is all basic Christian teaching that we should all be familiar with. But as a follower of Jesus, I should be in hot pursuit of this growing relationship, growing in maturity, pushing forward and challenging myself by God's grace and His will. And his point is not that each one of us are going to be scholars. I, I, I want you to get that. I'm not, I'm not saying that every single one of you needs to go, go upstairs and make a copy of Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology and memorize it. I, I don't expect every single one of you to have a f- firm grasp on every finer point of theology. I'm, you're not going to come up here next week and, and recite the hypostatic union and explain it to everybody. I want you to understand what it is. I want you to grapple with those things. But, but not all of us are going to be masters of every point of theology. But the question that every single one of us needs to be asking ourselves this morning, especially those of us who have been in the faith for many years, is this. Are you moving forward in maturity, in your thinking about right theology? And by theology, we just mean what we believe about God. Don't, don't take theology and go, oh, that's a scary word. I don't want to have anything to do with it because that's for smart people and I'm, I, I'm not good at reading. Theology is just, what do we believe about God? Are you growing in that? Are you growing in your understanding of Scripture? Are you reading it? Are you meditating on it? Are you applying God's Word in your life today? Or are you just satisfied with the idea that you passed first grade? Are you surviving on the fruit of your early growth and just coasting through to the finish line? Then in verse 3, he gets serious. He says, and this we will do if God permits. Now, there's some theology there, and there's also some really tough stuff there. It's a short phrase, but there's a lot going on. Spiritual maturity, he's saying, relies on two things. It relies on the human element of obedience, and it relies on the divine element of God's sovereignty in our lives. And these two things working together brings about spiritual maturity. You and I will go on, move on to Christian maturity as we walk in obedience and if God permits it. Now, I don't know about you, but does that raise a question in your head? Why, why would God not want me to move on in Christian obedience? Or maybe a better question is not that He wouldn't want us to, but why would God not allow me to move on to maturity? What would prevent me from moving on to further growth in the Christian life? And that's the question that He's going to be dealing with throughout the rest of this passage and the warning of these next few verses. And so I want you to keep that in mind. The, the, the topic that he's dealing with is their lack of spiritual maturity. And so the rebuke is towards this lack of spiritual maturity. They're sluggish. And the warning in these next few verses is regarding their lack of spiritual maturity. 
the comfort that he brings at the end of the passage is regarding their spiritual maturity. And that all brings us to the second movement of our passage, which is the third of five warning passages that we're going to discover throughout the whole book of Hebrews. We've looked at two already. This is the third one. And these warnings are wake-up calls. Uh, I don't know about you, but every single time we get to one of these warning passages, it's pretty convicting. I feel like I'm getting slapped around a little bit by God's Word. And and that's good. We, We need that. We need to wake up a little bit. And God uses His Word to reprove us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness, to teach us. And so that's okay. If you're feeling uncomfortable, embrace it. There's a third of five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And these warning again, they're, they're wake-up calls. And verses 4-8, through eight, it's probably one of the sternest of all of the warnings. But before we read these verses, I've got to tell you a story. It's a story of God's people. It's a story of saved people who are redeemed by God and delivered from slavery. I'm not going to go into great detail because we spent 16 sermons about a year and a half ago talking about that story. Realizing the story of what we call the book of Exodus. Over those few months, we discovered the story of Israel being redeemed by Yahweh from their not only their slavery in Egypt, but redeemed to be His people, and, and He was their God. He delivered them through the Red Sea. He taught them obedience in the desert. They were saved the same way that you and I are. How, how are people saved in the Old Testament? By their works? The good, by faith. They're saved by grace through faith as they look forward to what God's going to do for them. And, and the critical moment for them was that Red Sea where they believed They worshiped God. They believed. And they walked right into the Red Sea and they saw God's salvation. And for generations, they would look back on that moment. Just like we look back on the coming of Jesus. We look back on the the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they looked forward to how God would provide an ultimate sacrifice for the payment of their sins. And so understand that these were saved people. They were people who had a relationship with God. Now, as they... um, experience this relationship with him, I, I want to highlight four of the things that they went on to experience as they witnessed God's work in their nation and in their lives. Each one of them, they watched and they experienced these things. One of the first miraculous events that occurred for them was that God lit their way. Now, I don't mean that metaphorically. He literally lit their way. If you remember the passage, one of the first miraculous events that occurred for them was that they, uh, they were going through the wilderness. In fact, Pharaoh was coming on, on, out from behind them. They were trapped between uh, the mountain and the sea, and, and Pharaoh's coming behind them. And this pillar of fire comes down, and it blocks the way. And it didn't just go away after Pharaoh's army died in the Red Sea. What happened to that pillar of fire? What happened, Felipe? right that's right at night it was fire so they could see and sometimes they moved around by night and that fire went before them didn't it what happened during the day turned into a cloud yeah and and it covered them and gave them shade from the hot sun out in the wilderness didn't it yeah good here's somebody's pressing on towards maturity uh good job you keep reading your bible that's exciting yeah so there's this pillar of fire and it led them by night and so for years 
not just to Mount Sinai, but I believe that throughout that wilderness experience, that pillar of fire went on before them. And so this is something, I mean, can you imagine for half of your lifetime watching this pillar of fire go in front of you? Can you imagine getting used to it? And, eh, you know, uh, just fire. We've seen that a few times. That's kind of what happened. But this great pillar of fire appeared that provided them light by night. And that pillar of fire went on ahead of them for their journey. Secondly, they went into the desert and quickly they discovered, we're out of food. We don't have any food. And there's not exactly a lot of food out here in the wilderness. This is some pretty rocky soil. And so they'd they'd run out. And so God again provided a miracle. And when they came out of their tents in the morning, what'd they find? Manna. What is it? And it was bread from heaven. And so they started scooping it up and God gave them instructions on how to do that. And so every single day for the rest of their wilderness experience up to the day that they entered Canaan, that manna was out there and they scooped it up every day and that's what they ate. God provided bread from heaven. After the people set out from Mount Sinai, Numbers chapter 11 tells us about another amazing event. And I think oftentimes we overlook this one. When, when God called 70 of the elders of Israel, these are the, probably some of the 70 same elders that went up on Mount Sinai with Moses on that one occasion, and they, they saw heaven opened. They saw God's throne with a, a, a sea of, I think it's called the lapis lazuli under it. Um, can't remember if, yeah, there you go, good. Um, you pronounce it better than I do, that's good. And uh, so um, they, they saw that heaven opened. These 70 elders saw these things. And 70 elders came and they were called before. 68 of them came to the tent of meeting. Two of them were still out with the people. And God's Spirit came down and rested on those 70 men. And God gave a portion of what He had given to Moses and it was dispersed and they also received it. And those 70 men started prophesying preaching, teaching God's people. And, they, and the people recognized that the Holy Spirit had come down on the leaders of Israel. And it's mentioned right alongside the giving of manna and the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, I was surprised there's several passages in Nehemiah, Isaiah, Haggai here in Hebrews that, uh, that make reference to this event of the Spirit coming down on these men. And it's put right next to those miraculous events of the Red Sea, of fire from heaven and manna in the morning. We don't, we don't spend a lot of time in numbers sometimes, but, but several other passages make reference to this event and they highlight that the Holy Spirit came down and was in the midst of the people of Israel. It's one of the last miracles that took place before the people arrive at the border of Canaan. And they're ready to go in. And they send some spies into the land. The Spirit coming down on those 70 men was one of the last miracles that happened right before they went into the land. And then, of course, the people had come to Mount Sinai earlier. There, were, there God gave them the, word, the word, word to Moses, first on tablets of stone which He brought down from the mountain. He gave them, he gave them the law, and, and Moses met with God in the tent of the meeting. And um, he wrote down the law that God gave to him. He met face to face with God. The people saw how good God's Word is. And they were given a glimpse of God's power and the things that are still to come through many miracles. Red Sea, the fire on the mountain. They watched these things. They saw God's presence. And then they come to the land of Canaan. And in order to encourage them, in order to put their doubts to rest, 
in order to show them what He intends for them, what does God do next? So I want you to pick 12. 12 spies. I want them to go into the land and to give you a report of what the land's like. I want them to bring back some of the produce. I want you to see that this is a land that's flowing with milk and honey. I want you to see that this is a land of rest. That you're going to go in and I'm going to go before you just like I've gone into the wilderness. Just like I led you out of Egypt. And we're going to continue on in this journey. And I want you to see the good things that I have for you there. In this case, physical things. Things that literally with physical rest. Food. A land that was flowing. And so those 12 spies, they went into the land. They brought back some of the fruits. Um, one passage in chapter 13 tells us, uh, chapter 13, verse 23, says they came to the valley of Eshkel and they cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes. And if you go to the store and, and see a cluster of grapes, sometimes you go, whoa, look at this one. This is huge. Listen to what they brought back. They cut down a single cluster of grapes and they carried it on a pole between two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. In verse 27, they gave the report. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey and this is its fruit. But then verse 10, excuse me, then 10 of the 12 spies, they went on to say, the cities are fortified. The walls reach up to heaven. They told the people of giants in the land. They called them Nephilim, even though the Nephilim had been destroyed in the flood. And, and he says, they're, they're giants in the land. The Nephilim are here. They're back. They told the people that the land devours its inhabitants. And then in Numbers 14, we learn that there at Kadesh Barnea, remember the name of that place, it's an important event in, in, in history of Israel and in the Bible. There at Kadesh Barnea, we read in Numbers chapter 14, if you want to read with me in verse 1, it says, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and they be, the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is Yahweh bringing us to this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become her prey. Would it not be better to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Just a few verses later, verse 11, the people were ready to stone Moses and Aaron to death. And it's at that moment, as they're preparing to pick up stones, and they are preparing to pick up stones, they are literally getting ready to execute the man that God had chosen to deliver them from Egypt. And God's glory appears. My friends, when God's glory appears, can you just imagine? Stones fell, I think. So did a few knees. 
at that moment. The glory of the Lord appeared to all the people at the tent of meeting. And Yahweh said to Moses, How long will this people despise Me? And how long will they not believe in Me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater, greater and mightier than they. And, and, and following that, we see just the incredible humility of Moses. Do you remember what he does next? Moses says, no, Lord, don't please. You've delivered them from Egypt. What will the nations say? And he, he intercedes on their behalf. And he pleads on their behalf. He says, Lord, please pardon them. And, and remarkably, God pardons them. I, I want you to hear that. I want you to catch that. God pardons them. I firmly believe that in terms of eternal salvation, that these people, these Israelites that so miserably failed at Kadesh Barnea are still people that we're going to spend eternity with in heaven. Not every single individual of the nation, but as a whole, I believe that these people were people that had eternal life. We'll review this next week and talk about some of the reasons why I believe that. They were still the people of God. But there at Kadesh Barnea, a decisive event had taken place. Their progress toward entering the land of promise, the land of rest, had come to a halt. After everything that God had done for them, they decided, they decided decisively, we're going back. And though God pardoned them, what comes next is absolutely terrifying. God tells Moses that He pardoned the people. But because they had put God to the test and because they refused to obey His voice, not one person over the age of 40 years old, everybody that's over 40, raise your hand. If you're under 40, raise your hand. Congratulations. Not one person over the age of 40 years old would enter the promised land except for the two spies that had given the good report about Canaan and encouraged the people, move forward, press forward. For 40 years, the people would wander in the wilderness and every single one of them would die never receiving the blessings that had been promised. The passage goes on and tells us that the ten spies died from a plague there right at Kadesh Barnea. And only Joshua and Caleb lived. Now, you would think, after the glory of the Lord appears, after the people hear of the, the discipline that God has for them, you'd think that they'd say, okay, whatever God says, we'll do it, right? We, we get it. We get it. You'd think that the people would get it at this point. When God speaks to you, you listen, but watch what happens next because the end of chapter 14, these next few verses... I believe is critical to understanding the warning in Hebrews chapter 6. That's why we're spending so much time in the book of Numbers. The author of Hebrews has already mentioned this rebellion at Kadesh Barnea back at the beginning of chapter 4. And he again points back to this rebellion at Kadesh Barnea here in chapter 6. And pay close attention to the example set by the Israelites who had now been cursed by God to die in the wilderness. Look at verse 39, Numbers 14. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, 
The people mourned greatly. They rose early in the morning and they went up to the heights of the hill country saying, here we are, here we are, we're here. We'll go up to the place that Yahweh has promised for we've sinned. Do you get the idea? We're sorry. We repent. <laughs> oh, We'll obey you now. Sorry. We, we kind of really messed that up. But we'll, we'll listen. So let's go on in. Wouldn't you want to? When you hear what's about to happen for the next 38 and a half years? Okay, let's go. Let's go. Sorry. Just joking. <laughs> but Moses said, why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for Yahweh is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned back from following Yahweh, but Yahweh will not be with you. But they presumed to go to the, up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh nor Moses departed out of the camp. And then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them, even to Hormah. In terms of Hebrews chapter 6, the Israelites had fallen away. They'd fallen to the side. And it was impossible to restore them again to repentance. They changed their mind. They said, hey, we, we want to go in. We, we, we really do. Sorry, we're, we'll obey now. And God said, no, it is impossible for you to change your mind and go in. I, my discipline, my judgment is final. There's no turning back. Again, the discipline that they experienced for the remainder of their lifetime, this wasn't an issue of eternal security, of eternal salvation. And I, I recognize that some may not be convinced that the Israelites had eternal salvation, but let me just briefly remind you of what God's Word says about that generation, disobedient as they were. In Exodus chapter 4, God referred to the nation of Israel as His firstborn son. In Exodus 12, they bowed down in worship. And in the very next verse, it talks about how they applied the blood of the Passover lamb over the doors and the mantle. In Exodus 14, He describes them as those who feared the Lord and believed in Yahweh. And He uses the same terminology that's used of Abraham when it says that Abraham believed God. And Romans tells us that God credited it to him as righteousness. The same phrase is used of the Israelites that's used of Abraham, of his faith. Again, after the Red Sea, they worshipped. Again, in Exodus 33, when they saw the pillar of cloud over the tent where Moses met with God face to face, they worshipped. And in spite of all their failures, in spite of their disobedience, and in spite of the fact that God would discipline that generation, the book of Hebrews even, is later on going to describe them in the hall of faith. That great chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, when it says, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Moses, by faith, by faith by faith, and it lists all these people that followed God in faith. They're included there. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea. So I, I believe that the people of Israel were saved individuals. But they would completely miss out on the blessings of the promised land. They would camp in the wilderness for the next 38 and a half years or so. And every single adult save two would die. And for the rest of history, that generation would be held up as a model of disobedience. 
Now, you may be thinking, we just spent a lot of time not in Hebrews. Next week, we're going to examine five views of the warning passage. We're going to look closer at what is impossible and what that has to do with you and I and the earlier rebuke for those who are not pressing on to maturity. But before we leave here today, I want us to read the warning itself and see how the experience of the Israelites connects to our lives today. Look back at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. Let's just do 4 through 6 right now. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. The author of Hebrews writes to this young, this small Hebrew church, probably in Rome or somewhere in Italy. He's just rebuked them for their lack of maturity, their sluggishness. And then he says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. I've had some great conversations with some of you about this passage. Some of you had some really good questions. Peyton Spain and I were talking about this just the other week about a month ago she was asking about some of the details of this passage and some of the other warning passages that may have been for believers and also for maybe some people in church that hadn't believed and um really had some good questions and and her observation was uh, was that this this really sounds like these hebrews are genuine christians you look at the description of them it sounds like they're christians doesn't it to be sure, they probably had some in the midst who were considering Christianity and some who sought, thought that they were saved but had not truly understood the Gospel. But in this third warning, he's directly speaking to this group of people and it really sounds like they're Christians. I told Nate Payton that you know, there's some different viewpoints and I hadn't dug deep into this passage yet. And so I um, expressed theologically how some have approached this passage. Uh, I gave her some ideas and that I was shooting from the hip, I told her. I think that's what I said, right? Is that, is that the phrase I used? Yeah. But that I would be studying Hebrews 6 some more and I'd get back to her to, today. And after many hours of studying these verses in particular, I have to say I agree with Peyton 100% on that. These are Christians. This third warning passage is talking to those who are sons and daughters of God. That's a really good observation. That's what the text says. Watch what the author of Hebrews does here. He says that something is impossible in the case of those. And though that word those is going to be the umbrella that everything else is going to hang from here. It's impossible for those, and then he explains who those are with five statements. In the case of those who have once been enlightened. Now, in terms of what we just looked at in Exodus and Numbers, can you think of how the Israelites might have that God might have shed light on them in some way. Pillar fire. I mean, literally, He shed light on the nation of Israel. And for all those years, God led them by night with a pillar of fire that lit their way. But let me ask you, as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus Christ, has God enlightened you today in some way? Is it not those who have come to know the light of the world, Jesus Christ? that have been enlightened by His Spirit? 
We're going to take a, look, a deeper look at each of these five descriptions next week. But briefly consider the parallel between the Israelites and their experience of redemption and deliverance and, and the experience of your deliverance and redemption. In the case of those who have tasted the heavenly gift, the Israelites, they went out and they tasted manna, literal bread from heaven. And what did, what did Jesus say in that passage that Tamara just read for us? The true bread of heaven is me. Not, not me, but Jesus. I'm the bread of heaven. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. If you were a believer in Jesus Christ, how much more have you received than what those Israelites received in that wilderness for 40 years? Is the bread that you enjoy not something greater than sticky, gooey stuff that you go and pick up every morning? As great as that was. Is Jesus not better? In the case of those who have shared in the Holy Spirit, Hebrews is, I believe, alluding to this experience of 70 elders upon whom God poured out His Spirit and they prophesied among the people. How much more have we become participants in the Holy Spirit, participants in the Holy Spirit, who have each one of us, every single believer in Jesus Christ, has been baptized with the Holy Spirit? He indwells you. In verse 5, he goes on to talk about those who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. The Israelites, they received God's Word at Mount Sinai. And they witnessed the miracles that God performed. My friends, we too have received God's Word. Not only in, in written form, but the living Word, Jesus Christ, who John chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1 says He's the Word. And we are the beneficiaries of God's power that has been demonstrated in our lives just by the very fact that He has saved you from your sin is enough to go, wow, the power of God performs mighty things. But look at the fifth statement in verse 6. Because this is the tough one. And then have fallen away. I believe that those first four statements describe you if you have repented of your sin and turned in faith to the Savior Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul. But this fifth statement doesn't have to describe you. I believe that this is a warning to his Hebrew audience and it's a warning to us. Particularly those of us who have grown lazy in our faith and are not pressing on towards maturity in a greater way than Israel ever did as they left Egypt, you as believers in Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, the bread of life, the Word of God, you have been enlightened. You have tasted of the heavenly gift. You have shared in the Holy Spirit. You have tasted of the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the age to come. But if you repeat the rebellion of Israel that they rebelled at Kadesh Barnea. And if you repeat that and fall away, and next week we're going to talk about that word fall away and what I think it's talking about here. I'm not going to define it for you today because that's part of your Bible study. If you repeat their disobedience, then just like it was impossible for them to say, oh, we're sorry, we'll go. We messed up. Let's go. Let's go into the promised land. Just like it was impossible for them to turn to repentance to change their mind, if you repeat this disobedience, it will be just as impossible and more so 
than those who cried out and insisted on going into the Holy Land. It will be impossible for you to be restored to repentance. (sighs) It's already past quarter after. We need more time, don't we? Too bad we changed our clocks last night. Well, that leaves a lot of questions. I understand that. And I understand that I'm leaving you with a lot of questions. What does it mean to fall away? What does it mean? Impossible. What kind of repentance are we talking about here? Why, why, what's this talk about re-crucifying the Son of God? And what kind of judgment is He referring to in the following verses? And I'm not going to answer, try to answer those questions today. But let me conclude with three things. Number one, you have some Bible study cut out for you. Don't wait for the next sermon. Don't rely on me as the source of truth. That's what God's Word is for. And this is a great opportunity for you to cut your teeth on a difficult passage of Scripture. And and I've been studying it all week long. I get it. It's a difficult passage of Scripture. But cut your teeth on it a little bit. Start chewing on some of that gristle. And then we'll get our teeth ready before we get to Melchizedek in chapter 7 where he gives us some more tough stuff to work on. See what you discover in your own study of this. Number two, I'd like to propose that the warning here is to those of us who are spiritually lazy. And I know there's scholars and teachers and pastors who teach differently about that. We'll look at some of those views and why, why I have gone the direction I have on it. But I, I believe this is not a warning to blasphemers. It's not a warning against some unpardonable sin like the Pharisees had committed against the Spirit. I believe that this is a warning for those who in the context of this passage are dull of hearing. It's a warning to those who have decided like the Israelites at Kadesh Barnea, that they are not going to press on to maturity. They're just going to coast in. It's a warning to those who are content to coast through the remainder of their life and to accept mediocrity. And if you find yourself being described in any way there, If you hear that rebuke where he says you are being lazy in your maturity in the Christian life, if that describes you in any way and you feel any twinge of guilt there, I want you to understand that there is a serious warning in this passage. And whatever this repentance is and whatever this judgment is, which we'll discuss, you don't want to go there. Any more than the Israelites wanted to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. If you find yourself described in any way there, my friends, fall on your knees before your Savior and confess your sluggishness. And be an imitator of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And finally, number three, wherever you're at in your relationship with Jesus Christ, whether you're considering Christianity and you yet not, have not yet repented of your own sin, whether you've become spiritually lazy, whether there's a sin that you've tolerated in your life and it's hindering your walk with Him, or perhaps you've been going on to maturity, but the Lord's convicting you today of what those next steps should be. Wherever you're at right now in your Christian walk, determine to press on. Do not harden your heart today, but turn to Him. Enjoy His rest. And so let us go out from here and consider 
what God's Word means. And may we meditate on these things. Our Father in Heaven, Lord, I confess that this passage has been tough. It's been hard. Not only to hear, but to study. Lord, You know how I've struggled with some of these things and read so many others and their viewpoints on this. Most of all, been encouraged by Your Word and just the glory of Your grace that's displayed here in this beautiful passage. This hard passage. Father, I pray for myself and I pray for my friends here. I pray that each one of us that we would see the necessity of, of maturing in our walk with You. Father, I pray that not one of us would ever be satisfied with the past. That not one of us would be satisfied with how far we've come and neglect what's ahead of us. May not one of us think in any way that we want to go back to Egypt. So Lord, please convict us. Please teach us. Please comfort and exhort us when we need that too. Help us to understand this passage as we continue to study that this week. And Father, I pray that these things would be lived out in our lives in a very real way that would transform us and make us as individuals and us as a church into people that are in love with Jesus Christ.